Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science all around Australia on the Community Radio Network coming up to Science Week in August. But this week I am Stu and I have got a story about neonicotinoids. There's been some new research about this pesky pesticide that people are worried about uh, and about whether it's actually causing bees any problems or in some cases it seems to be doing them some good. But uh, I'll fill you in on the details of that a bit later in the show. Manisha. Hi, everyone. So today I'm going to be talking about everybody's favorite activity, poop. Love it. Yep. I'm talking about how great poop is for our environment and how come we all rely on it so heavily. And the bigger it is, the better it is. Yep. The bigger, the better. (laughs) (laughs) That's always been my philosophy. Mm -hmm. And Claire. (laughs) Um, Well, you did mention that we're coming up to Science Week. Science Week is almost upon us. It is um, everyone's favourite time of year, National Science Week. It's happening all across Australia from the 12th of August until the 20th, or a couple of days before that or a couple of days after. (laughs) In in some cases before the 12th and after the 20th, but still around about. Around about. The mid of August. The mid of August. Mm. It is the most sciencey part of the year. Mm, Tastes like science. The most sciencey part (laughs) of the year. Well done. To celebrate, I'm going to go around the country and talk to you about amazing things that you can get involved in for National Science Week. I'm going to do a roundup of Science Week events. A roundup. Yep, yep. But everybody should go on to scienceweek.net.au and see what is happening near them. Yay. Science Week on Lost in Science, where too much science is never enough. Every now and then a question surfaces and no matter how many times it seems to be answered, it disappears briefly only to be resurrected (laughs) thanks to the wonders of the internet. Stories go round and round and pass by experts and researchers and scientists and spokespeople and sink to the bottom of the internet barrel (laughs) only to be floated back up again because everyone can publish anything they want any time of night or day without any fact-checking or editing. That's the internet for you. Yeah. Yeah. Is, uh, is this just um, Stu's rant? Or no, 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 no. One such story which keeps doing the rounds is the nightmarish tale of bee decline. Um, some oh, years ago. Oh, bee decline. Yeah. Not like B-E decline. Bee decline. No. Bee decline. Bee decline. <laughs> no, the decline oh, of bees. Some years ago, concerns for bee colonies, especially in the United States, led to a sort of panic about the possibility that bees would become extinct and we wouldn't have... Coffee or chocolate seems to be the crux of everyone's problems with that. Isn't isn't one of them um, pollinated by something other than bees anyway? Oh, pro- most things are. Okay, all right. The, I think the, even, be- even if all of the honeybees in the world died out, pollination would still probably happen. 
uh, for you, most things. You heard it here first. Um, I mean, that's that's not a reason to go and kill bees. No, absolutely not. No. Because honey's good too. Yes. Um, but obviously this was a bit of a misinterpretation of an overreaction, of a misunderstanding, of a pretty ordinary fluctuation in bee numbers in certain parts of some countries in certain parts of the world. The reality for bees being living things is that populations vary over time in response to various environmental cues, including seasonal changes like, for example, the harsh northern hemisphere winters that they get in the northern parts of the world. Yeah. But in the panic to find a cause of the impending end of bees, some people are quick to place blame, usually at the foot of whatever was the latest in agricultural technology that they could see. What had changed, people sort of quickly jumped on things. So pesticides and herbicides were blamed uh, quite heavily for this, uh, what turned out to be an imagined bee genocide. But one particular chemical or group of chemicals came under a lot of fire, which was the class of insecticides called neonicotinoids. So neonicotinoids were developed as a way to phase out an older group of chemicals called organophosphates, which were known to be persistent and have huge negative effects on non-target insect populations and on wildlife and on the humans who applied these chemicals. Is that things like DDT? And and a group of and a group derivative of uh, chemicals that sure. came from that. Yeah. Um, so the organophosphates, in other words, as insecticides, worked a bit too well and for too long and kept working long after the problem was solved that they were applied to deal with. They're persistent in the environment. They yeah, don't go that's away. Right. So neonicotinoids were a step away from the overkill of the drench-everything-in-poison approach and they allowed uh, the soil to be treated or the seeds to be treated well before there was any plants around that would attract insects. Um, So you could just treat the seeds, for example, in advance and then the insects wouldn't be attracted to them for a start. Um, But being being systemic in the plants, they didn't require constant application, so they're less of a threat to wildlife and farm workers and any other nearby critters who were hanging around. But the insecticide did find its way into pollen in small amounts and also into nectar, and this is where the bee connection comes in. So a lot of people were worrying that this new breed of chemicals would adversely affect the bees because it makes sense. I mean, bees are insects and this is an insecticide. So it would not be all that surprising if there was some impact on the bees. Yeah. So what does the science say? What does the science say? Uh, In a study published in June in Science, um, 33 sites in three countries in Europe were studied for two years, looking at 88 variables of bee health and population. And what they found is out of that 88 uh, factors that they were looking at, eight of them showed a statistical significance compared with times when neonicotinoids were not used, but three of those showed a benefit to the bees. So there was a correlation, but the correlation was that the bees did better when they were using neonicotinoids than when they weren't, which is quite a surprise. This Um, is a correlation. Yeah, so this is a correlation. Um, And they think maybe that there was a correlation with that the neonicotinoids were controlling bee parasites. So there's... uh, arthropods that are parasites on bees and if you get rid of them then the bees do better overall so bees oh is this like a bee mite like a mite type thing yeah there's mites and there's other parasites as well that attack baby bees and adult bees and it's it's a lot more complicated than it looks from the surface (laughs) but there were so there were five other correlations that were negative 
um, and that what they found was that there were also other factors in that correlation that were also correlated. So they can't really be sure what exactly was going on. But out of 88 situations, only five of them showed any negative correlation with neonicotinoids. And even then, it's a correlation. They're not saying for sure that that's what's causing it. So it seems that overall, um, according to this research, neonicotinoids on their own are not to blame for much of anything as far as bee death or colony decline it goes. Um, and But combined with other pressures on bee colonies, there may be some connection between the, the insecticide itself. Um, but regardless... Recently, bee numbers around the world are increasing and the news of bee decline has been greatly exaggerated. Hi everyone, my name is Venetia and you're listening to Lost in Science. Um, Now we all know that Um, When one aspect of the ecosystem changes, there's a ripple effect throughout the entire ecosystem. If we lose a top predator, uh, the prey populations are likely to grow out of control. Or if we lose an essential pollinator, um, we lose some of the plants and the flowers that are dependent on that pollinator. And studying these interactions just helps us to understand the dynamics of our world. However, not all of these interactions are known, and therefore it's hard to anticipate how changes in the environment are going to play out in the long run, how they're going to play out in the future. And it's hard to say, uh, or hard to always know, what uh, contributes to the different cycles that we rely on. Like if we think of the water cycle, the hydrological cycle, here it's important to understand um, the evaporating, rising, cooling, condensing, and um, falling of the water, and what influences these actions. Another cycle that we rely quite heavily on is the phosphorus cycle. This nutrient cycle is important to our world because plants and animals rely heavily on phosphorus. What do they need phosphorus for? So uh, plants need phosphorus uh, for fertilization. So they need it to fertilize. Reproduce. (laughs) Reproduce. Yes, sure. Okay. (laughs) And um, it's important in animals because phosphorus makes up our DNA. Um, It makes up the molecules that store energy in our bodies, ATP and ADP. It's also part of our cell membranes, and it helps build um, certain parts of our bodies, like our bones and our teeth. So basically, if there was no phosphorus, we'd all die. Yeah, we'd be losing some um, pretty essential parts of of our being. So understanding the uh, phosphorus cycle and what leads to its contribution into the environment or maybe its depletion from the environment, it's important to understand how, like, how this... How, it's important to understand this um, to understand the state of our Earth. So what we know about phosphorus is that it's found in a liquid state at normal temperatures and pressures. And so it's not found as a gaseous, um, in a gaseous state in the environment, in the atmosphere. That means that um, it mainly cycles through the water, the soil, and the sediments slowly. It's slowly making its way through this cycle. It slowly makes its way from the sediments um, into the living organisms, and then it's even slower getting back into the water and into the land. It will move from um, the soil, uh, it'll move into the soil from the water, then into the plant materials, and then the animals eat the plants, and then uh, animals eat other animals or whatever. Like humans eat everything. Humans eat everything. Then everything dies, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then the phosphorus returns to the ground or the water. And naturally, uh, 
if this was the entirety of the cycle, naturally the phosphorus would um, go down to the depths of our oceans just based on gravity. So everything will just flow down. So um, like topwater predators poop out a lot of phosphorus or? Mm, yeah. So they're really important to this whole phosphorus cycle thing. Yeah. So actually, um, I was reading a study earlier this week, and that's what um, I wanted to talk about today was just how important poop is to this entire cycle. Um, the study was uh, published in the Proceedings for National Academy of Sciences, and um, they showed that the underestimated link of the, the phosphorus cycle, the thing that sort of accelerates the process from pulling the, the phosphorus out of the oceans and bringing it onto our lands, is um, is animals. And they don't poop where they eat, so they help to transport. <laughs> the- it's an important lesson for us all. <laughs> yep. Um, so they tend to transport the um, the phosphorus around the landscape. So they'll take it to the mountaintops and they'll take it to the treetops and they'll they'll pass it inland away from the um, from the oceans and things. So like. helpful. They're so good. I love animals. <laughs> so like, and yeah, you see that in in like the the salmon cycle in um, yep. North America, where the yep. salmon swim all the way upstream and yep. then all just die. Yeah. So they must be taking a whole lot of phosphorus, phosphorus up the up hill. There. Yeah. And then the bears like bat them out of the rivers and <laughs> smack them around into oh, the how forest. Cute. They don't, uh, I don't think that's entirely oh, what yeah. happens. They, but they get them out of the river and then they eat them and, you know, and then, and and then, then they poop them out all over the forest. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. So in their study, um, the study that was published in the Proceedings for National Academy of Sciences, uh, Christopher Doty and his colleagues show that the loss of megafauna, things like mammoths and dinosaurs, or more, as of more recently, um, the reduction in stable populations of rhinos and whales, um, the loss of these animals has really disrupted the phosphorus cycle. Mm. Um, and now the cycle is really heavily relying on bacteria instead of animals. So it, it's it's sort of... It's shifting. It is shifting. And bacteria doesn't travel as far or break down as much phosphorus as people would. Or not people, <laughs> or, but animals. Uh, megafauna? <laughs> yeah. So well, it's, it's interesting in Australia, though, too, because all of our megafauna is gone, long gone. Mm. And the phosphorus levels are really low in Australian soils. Like, naturally, anyway. We've yeah. topped them up with artificial yeah. sources. But We're also quite a lot older as well. Well, there is that, too. But, yeah, I wonder how much how much less there is because there's mm. no megafauna redistributing it around the place. Well, this is exactly what Christopher Doty and his colleagues wanted to um, explore as well, because what they wanted to do, what they hypothesized was that in the past we had more fertile lands um, because we had these larger, free-ranging, free-pooping animals going across the landscape, and we didn't have fenced animals or cattle ranches and things like that, paddocks with very contained um, contained uh, populations. Little- Sheepies. Yeah, oh, sheeps. <laughs> Ruining the land. <laughs> I mean, oh, sheeps. Um, so um, in, their, in their study, they, uh, they wanted to see how um, the distribution of the megafauna and the larger animals from in the past would have influenced the phosphorus cycle. So they used simulation modeling to model the distribution of phosphorus and of the megafauna. And they basically concluded that our lands were actually, our 
at present much less fertile, fertile due to the loss of these essential wandering and pooping species. <laughs> wandering <laughs> and pooping. Double whammy. <laughs> they so need this to have is both. Like, it doesn't work if they just wander. <laughs> so this is like um, Diprotodon, the giant wombat. Um, but it's everything. It's even it's everything. like yeah. It's uh, he um, in the in their study. The authors have even um, said that those things are long gone. But by re-establishment uh, of rhino populations, elephant populations, whale populations, all right. Even yeah. those things uh, will yeah. retrieve the phosphorus levels. Um, yes. Um, even those things will retrieve the phosphorus levels. Um, so, like one of the examples that they use is that is of whales that feed in the deep waters and they come up to the surface to breathe and poop, and um, they currently are only providing, or the current population of whales is only providing twenty three percent of their previous phosphorus contribution to the land, and. Um, Birds and fish, like salmon, um, that come inland after consuming their food at the sea are only contributing about 4% of their previous contributions or their expected previous contributions to the land. Their expected previous contributions. So in, in the modeling, the, um, they basically estimated how much these animals would have been contributing oh, okay. to the yeah. lands based on the level that they poop. <laughs> <laughs> the, the amount, the extent, the extent that right. they consume and give back to the land. Is that based on population? Population probably based on size as well. Right. And based on the um, nutrient quality of the foods that they eat. Mm. So it is a big cycle. So if your plant matter is low in phosphorus, then what you're consuming is low in phosphorus. Um, So, yeah, they were looking at a whole heap of different uh, variables to build these models. Um, and they've just basically said that the loss of animals is resulting in a massive loss in phosphorus and, their phosphorus and therefore interrupting the cycle. The authors warned that the easily accessible phosphorus could actually disappear within the next 50 years or so. That's terrifying. It is terrifying. Um, they did, however, end on a good note. They mentioned that the restoration of, of a large animal populations, populations like the whales, um, are so far successful, and so they may return to their previous levels, and they, which would result in their previous level of contribution of phosphorus to our land. And similar um, efforts to reestablish large animals will have the same effect. Working towards rebuilding di- and working towards rebuilding dying populations is essential to building our work back, our world back up to what it used to be. Um, it's hard to see. To it's not hard to see that conserving species is really important for our Earth. But it's also super interesting to know how everything is really interconnected. Um, And the decisions that we make now um, actually make their way through our world over the generations. We may not even know the the actual outcome of all of these losses until it's too late. Um, So pushes to save communities and populations of animals are important to the survival of our world and now and into the future. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. So it's coming up to my favourite time of year again. Everyone's favourite time. <laughs> Everyone's favourite time of year again. Christmas. Oh, jeez, Manisha. Sorry. It's not Christmas, it's- but it is National Science Week. 
Well done. <laughs> it's it's Science Miss in August. It's Science Miss in August. Oh, I yay. really think they need to undergo a rebrand. Mm. Mm, Science Miss in August. <laughs> so it's actually starting officially on the 12th of August and it will be going until the 20th of August. And for everyone playing at home, you will realise that that is more than seven days. Yeah, so really, it's, it's loosely a week. It's loosely science a week. Fortnight. It's very, yeah, science fortnight, pretty much, <laughs> because people get in there with events early and then events late. So it's pretty much just any time around August that you might have something sciencey going on. That's National Science Week or so Science Miss in August, whatever science you want to call it. Weekish. Science August. Week-ish. Woohoo! Woohoo! So um, I thought I'd talk about what is happening around Ooh, the country. Exciting, because there are some really exciting things happening. Um, if you were in Sydney, for example, uh, there is a Sydney Science Festival happening, 150 different science events happening between August 8 to 20, and there's something for everyone, including a night at the Opera House, Science Comes to the Opera House, um, for Life on Mars. Cool. Yeah, which is um, a night with NASA scientists talking about the 2020 rover mission. Cool. I know. Sounds awesome. Um, that's only three years away. It's only three years away. Yeah. Oh, gosh. We're in August. Mm-mm. It's no, more, no, it's no. less than three years. No, no, no. <laughs> um, or if you're more into the outdoors, you might have a family, you can take them down to the Wild Science Race Community event at Taronga Zoo where you get to complete challenges and run around the zoo, cool. which sounds fun. I, yeah. hope, I hope you get to, um, I don't know, verse the animals. In- <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I don't so. think they will let people do that. <laughs> I don't think no. so, Claire. <laughs> is it like a scavenger Probably hunt? Probably not. Yeah, something cool. like a scavenger hunt. Or there is um, something equally as cool called Science in the Swamp at Centennial Parklands. Um, and then at Redfern, the Indigenous Science Experience is happening again, looking at um, Aboriginal astronomy, um, native flora used in bush medicine and sustainable living taken from 65,000 years of Indigenous culture. So science is um, looking pretty amazing in Sydney. Now, if you're in Tassie and Adelaide, there are also some awesome science festivals happening there as well. So there is the Festival of Bright Ideas. You guys know Salamanca Markets down in Hobart. Yes, so great. Um, Yes, well... Um, the Festival of Bright Ideas is happening alongside Salamanca Markets um, in Hobart and that will be happening for school groups on the Friday and then um, Saturday the 12th of August um, with the markets. So what's his name? Matthew Evans, the um, the the guy who was like worked in restaurants and then he was – then he like – now he has an organic pig farm or something, Ooh. Matthew Evans. You don't know this guy? Well, no. he's really he's very big in Tasmania. Oh, okay, sweet. He lives in yeah, but that's easy because it's such a small place. <laughs> Are we big in Tasmania? I hope so. <laughs> we love our Tasmanian Shout listeners. Shout out to all our Tassie <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Um, South Australia is also having a Science Alive festival. They've got science shows, robots, native animals, hopefully not animals versus robots, um, oh, and a no. huge ra- – no, no. You keep saying no to all the things that I keep, t- Sorry, keep talking about. Sorry, I don't want to have animals No, well, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> and it's free for kids, that one, which is fantastic. But let me tell you, if you were in the top end and it happened to be in and around Darwin during National Science Week, well, we have a treat for you um, because an eco-apocalyptic circus show is happening in Darwin. 
for National Science Week. What does that mean? What, yeah, um, what is that? Well, it's all about exploring climate change through circus performance. Cool. Wow. Yeah. Doesn't that sound great? Yeah. I sort of want to go to Darwin just to see it. Mm-hmm. But um, all of our Darwin friends should definitely get along to that. Um, there's also things happening in Queensland. In Townsville, they've got um, Soapbox Science, cool. where 12 Queensland female scientists are taking their science to the soapbox. And uh, I've been um, told that there will actually be soapboxes for them to stand on. Real Does soap, soap even come in boxes anymore? Wouldn't it just be cardboard boxes? Cardboard boxes. <laughs> you just go, get, go to stand up on the box and you just fall right through. <laughs> Unless they're still full of soap, of course. And there's also another amazing um, thing happening in Queensland. It's a competition. You know, science, normally, it's all about brains. But this competition is not about brains. This is all about, I don't know, maybe dexterity. Okay, it's the Great Pipetting Challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So the Queensland Collaborative Science Centre in Maryborough is challenging the public to pit their pipettings pit their pipetting skills against the science champions of the lab. Um, so, yeah, you can if – you, if you think that pipetting, which is, you know, um, transferring small volumes of very, liquid very from one test <laughs> to, to another, um, if you think you're really good at that, then you can pit yourself against the scientists. Yeah. So you can have as many goes as you want. Like the it's a knockout of science. <laughs> I think it sounds great. I'm really into it. Or maybe you're in Victoria, um, in which case – there's Living Science at the Queen Vic Market, which includes a day of food, facts and fun for the whole family. Or maybe you're in Kyneton. I don't know how many Kyneton listeners we have out there. But the animators of Interstellar will be in Kyneton cool. um, and they'll be having a doing a talk and then we'll be watching Interstellar. So if you are in Melbourne, the Lost in Science Week Trivia Night. Woohoo! See what I did there? Nice. Um, will be happening at the Birmingham on Smith Street. So please come down and um and help us raise money for 3CR. And you book tickets on Eventbrite. And you can book tickets on, on Eventbrite. Trivia Night. Yeah. And the link of that is on our Facebook page and on our website. Now, also, everyone's favourite dystopian genetics film, Gattaca, is playing for free around the country at state libraries. So it will be happening in Perth. So everyone from Western Australia can go, but also Sydney, Queensland and Victoria, um, followed by a spirited discussion between commentators from ethics, science and the creative arts. Um, And looking at how um, the film has sort of uh, depicted real-life development of genetic science. Cool. But, you know, um, there's still time to hold your own Science Week event. And thanks to our friends at the Australia Science Channel, um, the Cinema International Science Film Festival, um, will, you can pretty much just hold your own Science Week event by going onto the Australia Science Channel and registering a science um, a Cinema Science Week event, and you can pretty much just download all of the movies and play them um, as a Science Week event. So that's a great idea as well. Great. Um, yeah, but the best thing to do, everyone, is go to scienceweek.net.au and check out what is happening near you.
that's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, and if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.